scriptures, the book of the Bible, and uh, some guy somewhere around 1000 AD decided to put some numbers in there for us to help us find uh, passages better. And so you'll see a big number one, actually you might not even see the big number one, a big number two and a big number three. Uh, We're going to start near the big number three here in a moment. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed uh, celebrating Advent for these past couple of weeks as we have uh, lit the candles and just a beautiful reminder that uh, Chris and Elise gave us this morning and as we read together. uh, Love Christmas carols. I love singing uh, the rich lyrics that are in those songs. I'm thankful that we sing all through the verses of those songs. Uh, If you're just used to singing the the choruses of those songs or the first verse of those songs, I encourage you to look at all of those. There's a lot of rich uh, theology in there. I love Christmas. Christmas. Uh, yesterday, uh, our ladies had a cookie exchange. Uh, so ladies, well done on the cookie exchange. I got to sample uh, several of those last night. I'll not confess to you right now how many of those I sampled last night. Uh, but man, good job on the cookie exchange. So uh, man, just good stuff around Christmas, is there not? The title for my sermon this morning, though, is Why Do We Need Christmas? Why do we need Christmas? Do you even agree that we need Christmas? Or, in your mind, as you walk in here this morning, as you go about your day this week, Do you just see Christmas as just another pastime, another uh, form of entertainment to fill your life with entertainment and neat neat pastimes? So it's just, oh, this time of year it gets cold. I like red sweaters. I like green sweaters. uh, So I like to wear those. I like to listen to different songs. I like eggnog. Is it just like another pastime to go alongside other pastimes? Or maybe Christmas for you is just another fairy tale to put alongside other fairy tales uh, that go along with this and other times of the year. Or do you believe that we need Christmas? I contend that we need Christmas, and I'm going to argue as such this morning that we need Christmas. Last week, Pastor J.D. started a series that we're doing in the month of December. We're taking a break from our ongoing study of the book of Acts, and we're focusing on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, This week we'll be in the second of a four-week series uh, on the gospel, and we're walking through what many different writers and many different uh, folks who have read the Bible and, and tried to figure out, all right, what's the 30,000 foot view of the Bible? Like if I were just to describe the Bible in a couple of words, what would I use? And so they've used a couple, and there's a few different variations, but typically it's creation, fall, reconciliation, consummation. So the the beginning of the Bible starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And what J.D. uh, talked about last week was as we read through Genesis chapter 1, God said and it was so and it was good. God said and it was so and it was good. That's the creation. God created all things and He created them to be very good, to include mankind in His own image and in His own likeness. What we're going to talk about this morning, you move a little bit further and you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you realize that something has gone drastically wrong. There is a break, there is a fracture, there is a chasm that is formed between God and man. And that happens in Genesis chapter 3. A lot of people have called it the fall. And then you get the rest of the Old Testament where there's this longing that we're going to talk about today. There's this longing and looking for the rescuer, the Savior, one who would reconcile all things together. And then you come to the New Testament and you see that Jesus is the one who is able to reconcile fallen man to Almighty Creator God. And so you get reconciliation. And then you got to get all the way to the end. It's been promised, it's looked to, but you got to get all the way to like Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And you realize that there's a consummation of all things where God again lives with His people and His people live with their God. And there is once again perfect shalom between God and man and creation. So this week we tackle what is commonly referred to as the fall of mankind. As you turn to Genesis chapter 3, most of your Bibles are even going to have a little heading above that chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and it probably says the fall or the fall of mankind. That's what we're going to tackle this morning. Uh, As we do so, because we're now a week and a half from Christmas, I am unapologetically going to preach the fall of mankind as the answer to why we need Christmas. The answer to why we need Christmas. My goal this morning is that God would use this passage, Genesis chapter 3, to create in us or revive in every single person in this room A proper angst for Christmas. I don't know if angst is a word that you use every day, but it's a a word I think most of us understand when we hear it, that we would have an angst for Christmas, a deep longing and understanding that something's not right in us and something's not right in the world, and so we long for something. We long for reconciliation. We long for a rescuer. So my goal this morning is that we would have that we would leave here with a proper angst for Christmas. If Christmas is a just a pastime for you alongside other pastimes, you'll not have an angst for it, you'll just let it come or go. If Christmas is just a fairy tale alongside other fairy tales, you'll not have this angst for it, you'll just let it come or go as it will. But if you have an angst, this general unsettledness, then we will long for, that we will strive for the answer to the angst. There's going to be four main truths in the text as we read and study. Four main truths that we'll see in the passage. First, that we, mankind, have rejected God. We have rejected God. Secondly, that God has responded. So we have rejected God. God has responded. If you're not familiar with the story, it may surprise you how He responds. If you are familiar with the story, it should surprise you how He responds. 
Thirdly, we live in the results of our sin. We live in the results of our sin. And then finally, we long for a rescuer. If you're taking notes, I'm going to combine the last two. That we live in the results of our sin, and we long for a rescue. We're going to combine those two. So pick it up with me. I'm actually not going to start in Genesis 3.1. I'm going to start a little before that, because we can't read Genesis 3 without understanding what God had told the first man, Adam, in Genesis chapter 2. So pick it up with me in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Crystal clear, right? You may eat of the trees, the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pick it up with me in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, our goal this morning is that this passage would bring about in us a proper angst for Christmas, a proper angst for Christmas. I'm confident this passage will help us to get there. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7, is that we have rejected God. We have rejected God. As I started in the intro, a lot of times this is called the fall of mankind, uh, and I generally fall in line with where Christians have described things in the past, but uh, that feels a little passive to me. When I read what Adam and Eve did, it doesn't feel passive. They reject God. They disobey God. They don't just fall like I trip and fall. They reject God. We, mankind, has rejected God. In verse 1, we see that Satan, appearing as a serpent approaches the woman, Eve, and questions the Word of God. So notice what he says. Did God actually say? Did God really say what you think He said? In verse 2 and 3, we notice that Eve entertains the temptation. She doesn't immediately stop it. She entertains the temptation. She displays an inaccurate understanding of the Word of God. You'll notice if you compare what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, with what Eve says down in chapter 3, that she adds to the Word of God. God never said that they couldn't touch the tree. God never said that they could not touch the fruit of the tree. He just said they could not eat of it. She added that they cannot touch it. She added, or her husband added when he told her. We don't know. But she did not have an accurate understanding of God's Word. In verse 4, Satan calls God a liar and calls God evil. He says that God is withholding something good from the woman. So he says, look, God's lying to you. You'll not actually die. What he's doing is he's actually keeping something from you that's good. If you, if you take of this fruit, you can be like God. You don't have to submit to God. 
You don't have to submit to His rules. You can be like God. In verse 6, Eve and her husband who was with her were told. Eve and her husband who was with her agree with Satan. They reject God's rule and they join Satan as enemies of God. That is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Meet your parents. Meet your parents. Adam and Eve are your parents. This is the lineage that every one of us in here is born into. We have an inaccurate understanding of what God has actually said. Once we start to delve into what He has actually said, we assume that He didn't actually say it, or we call Him a liar, or we think that somehow He's withholding things from us. And it starts from a really young age. I know for me, I grew up in the church. I sat in pews and I listened to sermons. And I assumed that it was all a ploy to try to get me to obey my mom and dad. I thought it was all just a trick to try to get me to be an obedient kid. That's what I thought of Christianity. I thought God didn't actually say that. If He did say it, then it's a lie. I don't actually have to obey my mom and dad. Or that He's evil, He's withholding something from me that's good, which is doing whatever I want. We, when we do these things, we have joined with Satan as enemies of Almighty God. Now what's interesting here, like me, many of us, there's a couple ways we can wrestle with this paragraph, right? A couple ways. I want you to notice any way other than taking it as it is, is agreeing with Satan. So, one thing you might try to do is say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. Right? So maybe you don't have the passage open. You're like, this guy is really misreading this. There's no way it actually says what he's saying that it says. I encourage you, there's, there's provided Bibles around. Go find other ones. Maybe we like pull the old bait and switch or something, go find other scriptures, go learn Hebrew, read it in the original text, whatever you need to do, go try to figure out if that's what it actually says. If I'm wrong and it doesn't say that, then please let me know. But the first thing we do is we say, no, 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 there's no way it says that. Or, another one, is we say, well, God didn't write that. God did not inspire the scriptures. When we do that, we're just echoing Satan. Did God actually say what He said? Did God actually say it? Again, if you take this tactic, you're just echoing Satan's question. Another tactic that is very popular is that we say that God is lying. Satan showed up and said, He'll not die. That seems a bit extreme, does it not? So we'll say that God is lying again. You're just echoing Satan. Or maybe you will say that God is evil to destroy His enemies. That's, that's not right. God, God's love, my understanding of God is that He's love. He would never hurt anyone. And so you'll say God, God would be wrong if that's true. And so that can't be true. 
Again, you'll just be echoing Satan. Ironically, on the last one, that God is evil to destroy His enemies, uh, when you have an enemy, you want them destroyed immediately, and you watch movies, right, with like Liam Neeson and other guys, revenge movies, and you're like, when, when he's wronged, he, he exacts revenge on them, and you're like, yes, I love that. Yes, vengeance, revenge. Right? That's why we joined the military, right? Isn't that why we joined the military? You threaten our freedom, we will kill you and all your friends. But then, oh, if God destroys His enemies, He's wrong to do so. You see how we trick ourselves in this? Again, anything you do other than just take the paragraph as it lies in the Scriptures, you find yourself on the side of Satan. And so I have to ask us, as we get to the end of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, just from what we understand, so if you just sit down at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and you read, God said and it was so and it was good, God said and it was so and it was good, and you get all the way through Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, just taking it as it is, what should happen? What should happen? What should happen after Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 is that Adam and Eve should die. Before the sun goes down on that day, they should die in their sins and you and I should have never been born. Honestly, until you get that, that we all deserve instant wrath and eternal damnation or to have never existed. Until you get to that point, I'm not sure you're ready to continue reading the rest of the Bible. Because the rest of the Bible understands that assumption. That what fair is, is that we all die. God created everything He gave the one rule. We have rejected Him as Creator. We've rejected Him as Sovereign Lord. And He has every right to destroy us. The next time somebody boldly declares, that's not fair, at least in your mind, if you have the boldness and the context is appropriate, it might be appropriate to say, that's right, it's not fair. What's fair is we all die. Today. Or that we never existed. That's what's fair. So that's what should happen after Genesis chapter 3. If we just take it as it is and we don't know what the rest of the story is, we just take it as it is. What happens next is not fair as we might understand fairness, but it is glorious. It is amazing and it shows a God who is far better than us and our revenge and our vengefulness. The second thing we see in verses 8-13 through is that God has responded. God has responded. So the man and the woman, they hid themselves. They make loincloths for themselves out of some plants. Verse 8 says that the Lord God comes walking in the cool of the day. 
We have to imagine that means like as the day is drawing to a close, I have to imagine that at least Adam, maybe both Adam and Eve, there's this memory of this command that says in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die and it's now the cool of the day. Maybe the sun is starting to set and the Lord God is walking in the garden. And again, what should happen in this moment is destruction. Instead, though, God engages in a dialogue with the man and then with the woman. He engages in dialogue. He asks them questions that He knows the answer to. Well, we can just be really clear on that. The God who created all things, it's, it's addressed elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. He knows all things. God knows the answers to the questions He's asking. What He's doing is He's attempting to get at the heart. He's attempting to pull out the heart of the man and the woman. So He engages them. He patiently engages them. He asks questions of them. Now there's a lot to be gleaned. There's a lot to study and think about with the answers that the man and the woman give. But I want us to focus this morning on God's response. When He could have destroyed them, instead He pursues them. He walks to them. They're hiding in the bushes. They're hiding among the trees. And He pursues them. Instead of destroying them, He pursues them. He patiently draws them out of their hiding. He draws them into conversation and into ongoing relationship. Let's be really clear in verses 8-13 through and really in the rest of chapter 3, the man and the woman's repentance is not on display here. Okay? They are not repentant. Lord, please spare us. Lord, please show us mercy. They don't say that. The man does what? He blames the woman you gave me, so I'm blaming the woman and God. The woman says, no, 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 the devil made me do it, the serpent made me do it. Their repentance is not on display. The closest thing to their repentance comes in uh, verse 21 where the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That's the closest thing we get to their repentance in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I don't know if you have toddlers. I know there's a few toddlers. I hear a couple toddlers this morning, right? If you've ever tried to clothe a toddler, there's two ways to clothe a toddler. One is they're willing to be clothed, and one is they're not willing to be clothed. You know what I'm saying? right? And so, I don't know which one's going on in Genesis chapter 3, but that's like the closest thing we have to their repentance. So, they are not immediately repentant. But God, what is on display is not their repentance. What's on display is God's patience to go and to pursue them. God's mercy in withholding Eternal damnation at this moment. What else is on display? God's loving kindness. Instead of killing them, He kills animals. That's implied in verse 21 that He clothes them with animal skins. We have to imagine that He killed two animals. So He introduces this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of them dying, animals die on that day. The Lord God provides them. The Lord God clothes them. The Lord God covers them. Some of you here 
So again, God's patience, God's mercy, God's loving kindness. Some of you here this morning, you, you think you've got like this agreement with God. You know that you've sinned, but just because you've been kept alive to this point, you assume that you and God are cool. Right? Like, oh, we have this understanding. I think God understands because He hasn't struck me dead yet. The Bible would plead with us, no, 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 no. God's patience, God's mercy, God's loving kindness is meant to draw us to repentance, not to leave us in our sin. God's patience is to lead us to repentance. Although God does patiently engage with Adam and Eve, and He does cover their sin in verse 21, they are not immediately fully restored. Right? We didn't go from, in the beginning God created, man and woman rejected, Revelation 21-22, consummation, restoration of all things. Instead, there's actually a lot more Bible and our lives. Right? So thirdly and fourthly this morning, I'm combining the last two things. Verses 14 through 24, we see this. We live in the results of sin and we long for or have an angst for a rescuer. So we live in the results of sin and we long for a rescuer. We're going to walk through the three people that God addresses in verses 14 through 24. So notice he, address, he addresses first the serpent. Revelation is really clear. The serpent, Satan. Satan appearing as a serpent. So the Lord addresses the serpent, Satan, appearing as a serpent in verses 14 and 15. So one of the results of our sin is that a very real enemy has been revealed. A very real enemy has been revealed. We can assume from this passage, and it's actually fleshed out elsewhere, that God has been an enemy, or sorry, that Satan has been an enemy of God sometime before Genesis chapter 3. We don't know exactly when all that happened. But Satan has been an enemy of God before Genesis 3. But here in Genesis 3, he is revealed, he is made known to the man and to the woman. He is a real enemy, and the man and the woman prove no match for him, spoiler alert, you and I are no match against Satan in and of ourselves. It's actually even worse than that. Not only are you and I no match to defeat Satan ourselves, so we have a real enemy, we're unable to defeat him, but it's even worse than that. We're not even trying to beat him, we've instead joined him. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 explaining this angst of longing for a rescuer explains that apart from Jesus Christ we are following the prince of the world, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're following along with Satan. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he's explaining why we need this work of reconciliation, why we need this work of Christ. He says that we are enemies of God when Christ reconciles us to God. We're enemies of God. So there is a real enemy. That enemy needs to die. And not only can we not 
destroy Him, but we're not even trying to destroy Him. We have instead joined Him as enemies of God. This is why we long for, this is why we have an angst for a rescuer. Someone outside of ourselves, someone infinitely better than ourselves, who is able to defeat Satan and free God's enemies, reconciling us, bringing us back together with God Himself. It's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. In verse 15, the victor is promised to Satan. The victor is promised, the rescuer is promised. He says there's going to be an offspring born to the woman. There's going to be a baby born to the woman. And that baby is going to destroy Satan. Satan is going to think that he has destroyed him when he hangs him on a cross as he's a man. Satan's going to hang him on a cross, think he's won, but he has just bruised his heel. And in that moment, the offspring of Eve, Jesus Christ is destroying Satan. And ultimately that happens in the book of Revelation where Jesus takes the final victory from Satan. This baby born of a woman will destroy Satan. That's why we need Jesus. We need a rescuer. We need someone who can defeat a very real enemy. It's not us. He's not in this room. We're looking for Christ who comes. He is born of a woman. He is able to defeat Satan. That's what we're longing for. Secondly, God speaks to the woman in verse 16. He speaks to the woman, and women, uh, you are more relationally, relational, generally speaking, than we men are. We men are built for community as well, but just the primary bent of women is for relationships. And here God speaks to the woman and He gives her a sampling of what the results of her sin are. I don't think He's trying to be exhaustive here. I don't think He's trying to explain all the consequences of her sin, but instead is giving her a sampling that He knows that will mean a lot to her. And He talks about her relationship with her children, and He talks about her relationship with her husband. First He says about her relationship with her children... He says that one of the results of her sin is that there will be pain in everything involved in raising children. Now, a lot of times we read that and we say, ah, oh, childbirth is painful. I, I believe you. Women have said that it's painful. I believe you that it is painful. But what I've come to realize from my mom from my sisters who are mothers, from my wife who's a mother, from other mothers that I have known... There is a pain involved in every aspect of raising children for a mother that we fathers don't quite get in the same way, right? Um, when my children sin, my wife generally will take that as like a referendum on her motherhood. Right? Like, if they have sinned, I must have done something wrong. Whereas, generally speaking, fathers were like, they've sinned. They've sinned, right? Like we, we're able to detach that a little bit. So the angst in your life as a mother is for a perfect child, right? You're longing for a perfect child. And your kids wake up every single morning trying to prove to you that they're not perfect. Anybody? I know we've got some like young kids. That was an amen. I got that, right? They wake up every morning just trying to prove to you, look, I'm not perfect yet. I know you want me to be perfect, but I'm not perfect yet. 
there's this angst, there's this longing for a perfect child. Jesus is the perfect child who has come to save sorrowful mothers. And you are not yet perfect children. There's another angst that you have this angst for a perfect husband. Right? So some of you young ladies are looking for a husband and you've watched a lot of Hallmark movies and a lot of chick flicks perhaps and you've, you've told yourself that there's a perfect guy out there, right? Let me ruin the surprise. There's not a perfect guy out there for you, humanly speaking. That angst, that angst is for Christ. That is only, that angst of wanting a perfect husband is only fulfilled in Christ. When Jesus refers to himself as the groom and his church as the bride, I think that's primarily in there for women. Guys read that and we're like, I don't know what that means, but that feels weird. Women read that and they're like, yes, okay, a perfect husband. I know I long for that. I know I want that. And I know this guy ain't it. Those of you that have been married for like six months, you're like, no, I think I can fix him. No, you can't. We're... Talk to some of the older ladies. They'll help you realize you can't fix us. We're unfixable by you. Trust Christ. Amen. Yes, that's good. Lastly, God speaks to the man. Verse 17 and following, he speaks to the man. He tells the man a couple things. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. You see, God had put the man in headship over the woman. And the man is like silence in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and probably the beginning of 6. Yep, through like... Some of the most important verses of the Bible, the man is silent. He is passive. He does not protect his wife. He does not teach his wife. He does not care for his wife. He does not stop the serpent. He does none of those things. Instead, he listens to the voice of his wife. Now be careful before you start quoting this passage, men. Okay? Your wife was given to you. We skipped over this part in Genesis chapter 2, but your wife is given to you as a helper fit for you, a helper suitable for you. So a lot of times when your wife tells you something, she's trying to help you, and she is God's gift in your life to help you see things that you don't see. Okay? Lots of amens today. I'm liking this. This is good. So, uh, so she's trying to help you see something, but there's times that she's acting selfishly and she's acting disobediently to God and you need to not listen to the voice of your wife. And you need a whole lot of wisdom to figure out which one you are in at a given time. But understand that God will hold you responsible. When you should have listened to your wife or when you should have not listened to your wife, God will hold you responsible. God says to the man, I told you, man, you don't get to blame your wife for this. I told you, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree and you ate. Don't blame your wife for this. I told you, I commanded you, and you ate anyway. You disobeyed me. Here's the results. Men, again, lots of results of our sin. One of them that God talks about is our work. Men are generally speaking, 
a big important thing in our lives is our work, our mission, accomplishments. What are we doing? What are we setting out to do? What have we done today? What have we done this week? What have we done with our lives? What is our work? What is our mission? And God explains that one of the results of our sin is that work is going to be eternally frustrating in this life. It's going to be always frustrating. In pain, we will eat of the ground all the days of our lives. Thorns and thistles are going to crowd out our work, and our work is going to be frustrating. By the sweat of our face, we will eat bread. And when it's all over, we're going to return to the dust of the ground because that's where we came from. Enter Jesus. Right? So men are in this frustration. He goes up to a couple fishermen. And the fishermen have been toiling all nights. I'm sure fishing is always a not, not a hobby. If your job is to fish, it's hard work. If it's your hobby, you're just sitting there with a line there, right? But like if it's your job and you need to catch a lot of fish and sell a lot of fish, it's hard work. I have a feeling it's even harder in the first century. And so these guys are working and laboring all night to no avail. They catch zero fish all night. They're laboring. They, they, they have thorns and thistles and sweat on their face. I have to imagine everything that God has instructed these men are feeling. First century, a, a night of no success in work and labor. And Jesus walks up to them and He says, Come, follow Me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. There, there are men all over the world who are dying, who are, who are going to suffer eternally because they have disobeyed God. And if you follow me, we're going to be in the work, we're going to be in the business, we're going to be in the mission of rescuing those men and reconciling them to Almighty God. That's a work that you can get excited about. That's a mission that you can dedicate your life to. How you earn a living can come and go and change over life. But if you're in the mission of being conformed and made into something else by Christ, to be a fisher of men, to, to draw men into relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. That is a mission that we can get behind. We have an angst for a work and a mission that can only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. This is why we need Christmas. Genesis chapter 3. We have these angsts. We have this longing deep down inside of us. We know there's an enemy. We know, ladies, you know that your children will never be the perfect children that you desire them to be. We know that your husband will never be the perfect husband that you desire him to be. Man, we know that your job will be over and over again frustrating and difficult. Jesus meets us in this place. This is the angst of Christmas. That we desperately need a rescuer. We have rebelled against God. God has responded to us in patience and mercy and His steadfast love thus far. We live in the results of ours and all of mankind's sin. We long for, we angst for a rescuer to save us from our lots. We should cry out as we see throughout the Scriptures and throughout church history, Come, Lord Jesus, come.
Praise God that He has come humbly, born in a manger in the first century. Praise God that He has come as a suffering servant to live the perfect life that you and I are unable to live. Praise God that Jesus has borne the penalty of our sin and He has borne the payment with a substitutionary sacrifice. He has come as a suffering servant. And praise God that He is resurrected and He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and that He is coming back as a triumphant ruling King. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I love you guys. Let's pray. That is our prayer this morning, God. That You would come into our hearts and into our lives and that we would find what we have been longing for. God, that You would make us aware of our sins and give us the heart to turn from our sins and to trust again in Christ. God, it's not much clearer than what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that while we were weak, and we are weak, at that time Christ died for the ungodly, and we are ungodly. God, You show Your love that even while we remain in our sin and while we are still sinners, that is when Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. So God, we pray that now, for those of us who are reconciled in God through Jesus Christ, that we would be saved by Your life that we would grow more and more like You. God, we love You. We look forward to what You have for us for the rest of our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. As uh, the musicians come, we're going to sing a couple of songs um, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Um, Full disclosure, these are my two favorite Christmas songs uh, this season. One of them has been my favorite song probably for the past 10 years. Um, but I think they really do get at the heart of what we're talking about this morning. One is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, as Stephen prayed a few moments ago, uh, Emmanuel means God with us. That, that Christ would, that God would come and He has come as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ has come and was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. But we're also, so we're praising God, rejoice, rejoice that Emmanuel has come, and so we're rejoicing that He has come, and then we're also looking forward to when He comes again. And then the other song is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Again, we can think about the uh, Second Temple Jews before Christ comes the first time, singing this song, Come Long Expected Jesus. But then we can also echo with them, praying that God would come again. So we praise God for His first advent, and we look forward to the second advent. So if you would, stand and sing with us as we sing these two songs. Thank <laughs> you.